Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth Podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Myers. And this is week six of our Lent series. We're in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, this is our final week in the book of Ezekiel because next week is Holy Week. Y'all, today we are joined by Dr. Danny Hayes. He is a return guest of the She Reads Truth podcast. He is an Old Testament professor, which is just the guy for the job for this final week of the book of Ezekiel. Something we love about Dr. Hayes is his emphasis on the presence of God as a theme in Scripture. So we're going to get a lot of really good connection points about that in this episode. But something that really looking forward to y'all getting to hear is at the very end of the episode, he's going to give us this beautiful connection, this thread from the end of the book of Ezekiel to the triumphal entry in the book of Luke. And it's going to connect these weeks and this series of Lent in a way that for Amanda and I, I feel like we've just never felt more prepared in a way or more excited for Holy Week than we have through this series and coming out of Ezekiel. So Y'all, this is a fantastic episode. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Let's get right to it. Well, Dr. Danny Hayes, welcome back to the She Reads Truth podcast. It's been a while. It has, but it's good to be with you. Glad you guys are still doing this and going at it. (laughs) Still doing this. We like to bring you back for the especially light episodes. You know, last year, or back in 2020, you were our guest for an especially light uh, week of the book of Daniel. And welcome back for Ezekiel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You give me all the hard passages, so (laughs) thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, I would say that we we didn't mean to do that, but we actually did. We did. (laughs) We need some help and guidance as we read through these texts. And so we're thankful for your willingness to say yes and join us. Yes. Well, it's good to be with you. Well, listeners, we are in the final week of the Mm -hmm. book of Ezekiel, and if you've been with us since the beginning, you know that we spent a great number of chapters on the judgment of Judah, God's judgment on Judah, and that was followed by sort of a turning toward a judgment on the surrounding nations. And then we got to last week step into these messages of hope, and this is the continuation of that, but it's also kind of the nitty-gritty of like what hope is going to look like. Yeah, And so we're stepping into not a lot of passages that you're going to see hand-lettered, not on Instagram, you know, unless it's on the <laughs> Sherry's Truth Instagram, because we'll, we'll put about anything on there. But this is going to be a lot of, like, detail of Ezekiel's vision that the Lord has given him of mm-hmm. the new temple. What do we have to look forward to this week, Dr. Hayes? It's a climactic part of the book of Ezekiel is not so much the temple as it is the return of God. That's right. That uh, earlier on, when you guys studied earlier and you were in chapters, you know, 8, 9, and 10, then because of their sin, then God left uh, the temple. And in my mind, not everybody agrees with this, but in my mind, that signaled the end of the covenant relationship. Mm. And, And this was a crucial event. And so, Here, Ezekiel is looking forward to the time when God returns, the presence of God returns and reestablishes that relationship in in a new and fantastic way. And that picks up with what you just did earlier with the promise of the Spirit, which you did in one of your earlier chapters where God says he is going to put his Spirit in them. So we see the presence of God as the main driving theme, I think, a critical theme throughout Ezekiel, and it climaxes here in these in 40 to 48. That's right. That's right. And in 40 to 48, 
like I said, it's a lot of measurements of the temple, of the land, and even like it's a reallotment of the territories. A somewhat rhetorical, but also not rhetorical question. Why should the She Reads Truth community be women in the Word of God every day this week? Why should they be reading this text? Yeah, I, I think what's great about this passage, like you said, there are lots of numbers, and I'm not I'm not arguing that those are overly significant, and we should be reading, you know, how many cubits wide the walls are with deep spiritual significance. But sprinkled in throughout, there are critical passages about right. God's presence, and those are the ones also that are easier to understand and to grasp. And in your reading guide, you guys highlight that. And you've underscored those particular passages. So, wow, we can read those and benefit those. And, you know, even scholars like me tend to read pretty quickly over how (laughs) wide the walls were. But, boy, we stop when God shows up and and read that. That's beautiful. And I would say something that helped me in reading the Scripture this week— Sometimes to stay focused, it helps me just throw some AirPods in and also listen to it as I'm reading it, even at like one and a quarter speed. Like just listen as my eyes follow it. It helps me from getting distracted. It keeps more of my senses engaged. And so that helps me get all the reading done. Now, I do have a question, Dr. Hayes. This temple that Ezekiel, this vision that he's having, that the Lord's giving him of this new temple— for any listeners who have visited Israel or who look forward to hopefully one day visiting Israel, is this the temple that they have seen or will see? Well, no, it's a good question. They haven't seen it. I can tell you that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's a huge issue, and scholars are split on this, okay? There's a huge division, and and among your listeners, I didn't realize I was bringing up a a divisive question. Hot topic. No, it is. It's a very divisive, and there's no consensus. Okay. And so, even among scholars, you don't find where everybody agrees. You know, if you can just read the Hebrew, we can get to the bottom of this and come to an agreement, and it's not true. And so... Number one, that introduces a bit of humility into the discussion. Okay. And so you'll get my views and my opinions, but there are a lot of godly, scholarly people that disagree with this. I genuinely uh, did not know that I was asking a, a, a it, yeah, it is an explosive. Question. Okay. And some people get angry over this. Whether oh, no, I mean it's it's any. I mean I've taught this in church settings and. You know, and I've gotten some pushback from, again, serious students of the Bible in the, in, in the class that, well, on the one hand, and what you have are, what is the vision of? Is it, some would say, this is a real temple that's going to be built and be used during the millennial kingdom. And so these are the dimensions of how to actually build this future temple, and it will be an actual temple built. That's one view. Another view, and I tend to fall in the second view, is that, you know, there's sacrifices going on here. Really, that's not going to happen. I mean, the New Testament has ended this. This temple presents the Levitical system and sacrifices and a, a lot of things that the New Testament has pretty clearly done away with. And so, to me, it's a more symbolic, idealized vision. And, of course, he never tells them 
that these are the plans for building a new temple. God never says that or instructs you. In contrast to back in Exodus, when God gives Moses all these directions for building the tabernacle, he tells him very clearly, here's how you build the tabernacle. Build it this, and he gives cubit widths and all that stuff. But you can see clearly these are instructions for how to build it. But here it tells us it's a vision. To me, it's a, the point is the return of God. He's mm-hmm. showing an idealized temple functioning similar to what it would have done in, in his lifetime, you know, prior. And boy, the New Testament changes so many things about what the temple is, what the presence of God is. And, and you guys bring those verses out really well as you in, in, in your booklet. One other thing I want to throw in, okay, at the beginning is that notice that there's a tour guide. Yeah. Uh, along the way, that there's a man which shows him things and gives him directions. Okay, well, this this is one of the characteristics of what we normally call apocalyptic literature. You see it in Daniel. There's a there's an end. Usually, it's an angelic kind of guide. You see it a couple places in Zechariah where there's an angel, and then in some other Jewish apocalyptic literature, and you see it some in Revelation. So while this section doesn't have all the bizarre symbolism like you normally see in apocalyptic, so it's not quite apocalyptic, but the guide also kind of indicates to us this this is a different kind of literature. It's not just God talking to Ezekiel and telling him, here's how the future temple is going to be built. Wow, this is fascinating. It really is. And I love how even your approach to that question, Dr. Hayes, underscores what you said at the beginning, that the climax here is not the temple itself, it's God's presence returning. And so I'd love for us to read some of that, the return of God's glory here from the our first reading day this week in chapter 43. I'm going to read a little bit starting in verse 1 here in Ezekiel 43. He, and this is the the guide you're talking about, he led me to the gate, the one that faces east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the one I had seen when he came to destroy the city, And like the ones I had seen by the Chabar Canal, I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by way of the gate that faced east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, Dr. Hayes, this is obviously a very significant moment. You know, we we read several, you know, back in in Ezekiel when the glory of the Lord departed and that kind of like slow and poignant departure from the temple and from Jerusalem. And now he's returning. What is the significance? We get this detail that it's in the East Gate. Can you tell us a little bit about the East Gate? Because that's pointed out several times this week. East is going to be the entrance, and the temple will face the east. The door will be to the east. But this goes all the way back to Genesis. So when Adam and Eve, and that's where the presence of God story takes place. You know, at the beginning, people are in the garden with God. They enjoy his presence, but because of sin, 
They get kicked out of the garden, and they put a cherubim guarding that eastward entry point. And so at that point, then, that seems to be the way out and the way in to the garden. And then when they lay out the both the tabernacle and then the temple, the main entrance is facing you know to the east. And back in Genesis, there's this movement as people are pushed away from God, even as it moves to Cain and he moves in those opening chapters. If you notice, they're scattering to the east, to the east, to the east. There's about three mm. movements away, kind of showing the separation. And so now when God is coming back, and that's the gate, he goes out, of course, back in 8, 9, and 10 when God mm-hmm. when God leaves here in Ezekiel. So he's coming back the way he went out, you know. And I think it's signifying a, you know, a restoration of the of the relationship. Mm. Uh, and you know, it's not just the departure when he leaves. I think you know, back in Exodus, when he makes that covenant with them at Exodus and Exodus nineteen, God says, "I'll be your God. You'll be my people, and I will dwell in your midst." And that's at the heart of this covenant relationship. And that's why they have the tabernacle. And that's why. He tells him to build the tabernacle so he can live in their midst and why he can move into the temple. So that's at the core of the covenant. So when he leaves back in Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, to me, that signals it's over. The relationship is over between Israel and God. And yet the prophets are going to predict this time in the future when God would come back and restore things and it'd be even better. And that's what Ezekiel is describing here as God returns, comes back into this mm-hmm. temple in a spectacular fashion. And from the east, that's where he went out. That's where yeah. he comes back. Yeah. Okay. So for my concrete thinking mind, and probably some of our friends listening, knowing that the vision that Ezekiel has, like and like the descriptions of the temple in this vision like knowing now that there is like some uncertainty around what exactly Ezekiel is seeing, I want to ask about the second temple. And for our friends listening who have a She Reads Your Study book, y'all, there's a really helpful, hopefully helpful extra on pages 180 and 181. And Dr. Hayes, you have the He Reads Truth Legacy book, and so it's on different pages for you. But what I want to know is, oh, he's this got one it with your chart. That is fantastic. You guys did a great job with this. Okay. okay. Anyway, keep going. I, feel like right, we I got an A. Yeah. I love. Yeah, I love this. I love this. Okay. All right. This is the story of the Bible, right there. It's the right temples. there. Anyway. Right. Yeah. And, all right. Yeah. and yeah. looking at the temple in yeah. Scripture and starting with the Garden of Eden and going all the way to the Holy City, but this second temple, we had the first temple and it was destroyed, and there's the exile and. And then, and you'll help us understand this hopefully later in the episode, but when the exiles returned to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and and then, you know, Nehemiah comes and helps rebuild the wall around the temple, around Jerusalem, that's called the second temple. Is that correct? Yes. Well, then, and then Herod expands on it. It's Herod the Great, right? Right, right. Prior to Jesus, that makes it spectacular. Yes, and, and it, it makes it longer. The Temple Mount. He expands the Temple Mount with some big retaining walls. That's what the Western Wall is, you know. And so he makes the whole platform and he builds a spectacular one. Yeah, and we still we lump all that together with call it the Second Temple. And so that temple is the temple that Jesus taught in. Like that was Jesus' temple. 
And then that was destroyed in 7070, right? And so for right. those of us who have been to Israel or hope to one day go to Israel, when we visit Israel, we're not visiting this second temple, correct? When you come to the south side of the Temple Mount, okay? Yes. And you come from the south, and there's a series of steps that go up, and then the there's southern the, steps. There's the southern. All right, those are the same steps okay. that Jesus goes up to go into the second temple that was built by Herod. Okay. And the door sealed up right there, but that was the door. They would have gone in that. So okay. the bottom blocks that you see there or around the corner where the Wailing Wall is. Yeah. These big, gigantic blocks that you see in the wall, they're huge, okay? Mm -hmm. Those were there, built, put by Herod the Great. And so all of that part of the temple was there at the time of Jesus. Okay. And it goes up about halfway, okay? Because when the Romans came and destroyed it, they just started pushing off these big blocks from the tops. Hard to destroy a temple with big, gigantic <laughs> blocks. And so they start from the top, pushing them off, but you can only go halfway. Yeah. Because the blocks on the other side have now filled up the the rubble, okay? And oh. so, so the temple walls were really destroyed about halfway down. And then later on, during the Crusade era, it gets rebuilt. So what you see on the top part is from the Crusade Air, you know, later on when they refortified, but the bottom blocks, the big ones, these are all from the temple, uh, so from the from from the time of Christ. Yeah, I understand that's a divergence from what we're reading here, but it helps me to understand what we're reading about and kind of what came before and what what comes after. Right. Well, I think Ezekiel's vision is kind of tied to this location, though. I mean, he's not floating. The temple for him is not floating in space because. When he starts talking at the end about that river flowing out, and we'll get to that in a minute, but he mm -hmm. has that river flowing out to the east mm -hmm. and heading down to where the Jordan River is and to where the Dead Sea is. So he's got a spatial concept and the dimensions and things. So I, I, you know, I think in his mind, this is at the same place on the Temple Mount. He's back in that same general area. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So as we are kind of turning the page. We started, you know, this week in day 36 and turning the page to day 37, we see this vision of the altar and then we go on to the prince. I want to ask you, first of all, I, again, full of questions. You can answer them or not if you, you don't have <laughs> to know everything. <laughs> but something that just really fascinated me was this idea of the altar needing to be atoned for. So like in, in chapter 43, verse 20, for example, in this way, you will purify the altar and make atonement for it. Or later in verse 22, they will purify the altar. Why are they purifying or making atonement for the, the altar, the place on which atonement will be made? Help us understand that. Well, I think the entire area, you know, had been defiled. Okay. And you see that earlier on. Remember mm -hmm. when Ezekiel is given that tour back in chapter 8, and God says, do you see all these yes. terrible things they're doing that's going to drive me from my mm -hmm. temple? And right there in the courtyard at the gate, there's an idol, you know. I mean, right. And so the temple gets defiled in a, in a way, even during the time of Ezekiel. And so any kind of restoration 
there needs to be a cleansing, you know, and a purification yeah. for, you know, for these, for these things. And so I think that you see that running throughout. Yeah. They're purifying different types of things throughout the vision. That makes sense. Okay. So what about in chapter 44, verse two, it's talking about the East Gate, which we've talked about a little bit. And it says, the man then brought me back toward the sanctuary's outer gate that faced east, and it was closed. The Lord said to me, this gate will remain closed. It will not be opened, and no one will enter through it because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. And so you've talked a little bit about the significance of the east gate. Is there a tie to the east gate between the east gate and Jesus? Or like, why, I know that you've kind of given us a like, well, that has its roots in the garden, but why here would he, in his vision, why would it be closed? I don't know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, if you want a clear answer. I love uh, it. No. I'm so grateful I, to I hear you, someone just say, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'll, uh-huh. uh-huh. I'll give you my, my, my <laughs> guess. In a lot of the ancient Near East, sometimes there would be a gate just for the king. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and they would seal it up and they wouldn't let anybody else go through it. Uh, yeah. You, you see this even, it's you see it later from Greco-Roman ruins where you'll see the entrance to the city has three gate openings. Mm-hmm. The big one in the middle is was for the king that visited or something. So, And so I think they're trying to gather the special event of the fact that this is the one that God has okay. come into. Mm-hmm. The significance of closing it, of course, is that... He's in the city, and so it may be signifying he's not leaving again. Oh, yeah. And and that this is an eternal situation. He's not going out. We don't need that gate open. We don't need this anymore. Because the point of it, you're not going to be kicked out. We're not going out that this entry in and out Mm. is is final. And so that may be what the point is of of shutting the gate. So in— In the second temple, the one that was built and then destroyed, the East Gate, is that the one that you can see from the Garden of Gethsemane? Is that where Jesus entered the city? That's wrong. Okay. From from the Mount of Olives, okay? There we go. If you're you're on the Mount of Olives, you're looking west, okay, Okay. at the temple. So if you get in the temple and you turn around, you're facing east, okay? Okay. So what you see, you go down across the Kedron Valley, and then there's a gate. You can see it's sealed up, okay? Now, that gate is from, again, the Crusader era. But underneath that, years ago, after it had rained, and there's graves in there, so you can't go digging around in there. But one of the graves had collapsed, and an archaeologist was down there, and he thinks there's the frame of a gate underneath that. There's an ancient gate underneath that that would have been the east that would have been the eastern gate, at least for the second for the second temple. Mm. Uh, so the proximity is probably the same place. That's just not the same gates yeah. down underneath that. Would Boy, be that's fascinating. What we would, and the gates and all, just to kind of pick up and on that you know overview that you alluded to earlier with the whole flow of things is that you know you've got the garden and the Israel's kind of loses the presence and gets kicked out of the garden. That God recreates that a little bit in the promised land. He's going to dwell with them in the tabernacle. He goes into the promised land. They're now living with him. He's now in the temple and living in their midst. They're in the promised land. The presence of God's this huge blessing at the core of their relationship. Then in Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, a critical event in the Old Testament, God's presence leaves. And then Jerusalem's destroyed. Now in the post-exilic time, 
Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, you know, Nehemiah, they come back, like you mentioned, and they rebuild the temple. It's kind of a ragtag. They don't have the resources Solomon had to build a spectacular temple. They build a little temple, but what's missing in Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra is any kind of description of the glory of God returning. Okay. When God comes into the tabernacle in Exodus at the end, it's a gigantic event. God, Big moment. Right. And it's described. The glory of God is huge. Okay. He comes in. The same thing with the temple. When Solomon finishes the temple, again, it's a huge event. Here comes the glory of God. It's, it's the center. It's a spectacular. So when we get to Haggai, he builds the temple and nothing, you know. And so the glory of God does not return to that second temple until Jesus walks in the gates. Hmm. And so they've gone all that time without the presence of God there at all. And so the return, now you have Emmanuel, God with us. God has come back to the land in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he brings that presence, you know, back into the temple. And of course, he finds the same kind of stuff they had before, you know. So that's a huge thing. You know, that second temple doesn't have the presence of God, and only Jesus brings that presence of God into that mm. into that second temple. Boy, it is so helpful to hear this clarification, because on first read, for me, I was like, well, this vision that Ezekiel's having is the thing that happened, you know? like, And so I read that thinking like, well, I guess that's how it, how it went. And so it was really helpful for you to unpack that for us. Thank you so much. I, okay, I have another question, if I, if I may. I appreciate sure. your I don't know more than you can understand, and I think our <laughs> listeners do. You know, whether you're here or whether you're in the book of Revelation, you better just bring that up every now and then. Yeah. You know? well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah. give us some clarity around the prince. Kind of throughout the rest of, of Ezekiel, we hear like, Talking about the prince's privilege or like the things that the prince does. Who's the prince? Yeah. Again, another controversial point. Okay. <laughs> just uh, really er, listen. And the first part of Ezekiel seems to be different, okay, than what you see here in yeah. 40 to 48. It's tempting to see something messianic in it. Okay. Some people mm-hmm. will go with that. I don't really see it that way. There's no connection here in 40 to 48 with the prince and and the promise to David. There's no Davidic. Okay. They they, you know, it would be easy to say that this is the line of David or the, mm-hmm. the you know, the seed of David. Or, and, and there's none of that. And so, and it's not the king. And so it's, in my mind, and again, I'm lots of uncertainty. I think he just represents the, uh, in his vision, in Ezekiel's day, the royal, the house, the monarchy, played a huge role in the temple, the human monarchy. And I think the prince in this vision perhaps represents that. And if you notice so here in, 40, in 44, okay, they come inside the gate, okay, we just read one and two. Mm-hmm. Then in verse three, the prince comes inside, okay, and he's there at the gateway. But notice this is a long ways from the Holy of Holies, or the mm-hmm. holy place where, oh, at the gate? Where, the Le- yeah. where the Levites where the Levites are going to go. This is right. out in the courtyard, mm-hmm. and so the prince. I think they're saying the monarchy. Okay, it's allowed in. It's got a special role. He plays a special thing, but it's it's secondary to what the Levites are going. Those priests hmm. that come into the presence of God have an even greater role. 
yeah. uh, is one of the things that I that I would see. But like I said, there's lots of uncertainty about that. That's really interesting, and I'm glad I asked because I feel like the whole time I was reading, I was like, "Who's the prince? <laughs> Who is this? Who's this guy?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey friends, taking a quick break from this conversation to tell you about one of our podcast sponsors, Haya. Now, if you're a parent, you probably already know this that I'm about to tell you, but typical children's vitamins are basically just candy in disguise. And honestly, not even in much of a disguise because our youngest, Toby, has literally referred to vitamins that I've given in the past as candy. Can I have another piece of candy, please? That should have been my first clue. But typical children's vitamins are filled with two teaspoons of sugar, like five grams of sugar. Isn't that crazy? And they have unhealthy chemicals and other gummy junk that growing kids just shouldn't eat. And that is why Haya was created. Two dads who wanted something better for their kids. Haya is made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk, and it's designed for kids of all ages. Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. All the normal vitamins that you want your kids to have to support immunity, energy, brain function, all the things. It is non-GMO, it's vegan, it's dairy-free, it's allergy-free, it's all the things, you guys, and it's manufactured in the USA and it's sent straight to your door. So the first month, it comes in this really cute reusable glass bottle. Your kid can personalize it with stickers. And then after that, there's a no plastic refill pouch that comes with fresh vitamins each month, which means it's not just good for your kids, it's good for the environment. Okay, here's the deal. We've worked out a special offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You can receive 50% off your first order by going to Haya.com truth or entering the code TRUTH at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash TRUTH. And you can get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. The full discount will be applied at checkout. We have a new sponsor for the She Reads Truth podcast, Amanda. We do. Who is it? Tell me. Okay, this week's episode is brought to us by Athletic Greens. Have you heard of them? I'm going to be honest, I have not. Okay. Well, listen, I started taking, it's called AG1 Okay. for two reasons. One, I wanted to have more energy. <laughs> yeah, same. Same, same. <laughs> and number two, I've been hearing about it and I've just been curious if it's worth the hype. Okay. So what's your review? So also I will say I was super skeptical about the taste because I didn't want it to taste I like I mean, it is called athletic, athletic greens. greens. Yeah. Yes. My honest take is it tasted great. Like it really tastes good. Like it really. I mean, did I'm not watching you guys. I'm looking at her face to make sure <laughs> she's telling me the truth. Not that she lies to me. She does not lie to me. But she said you're telling me the truth I'm right now. I'm telling you the truth. Okay, and I believe here's you. the deal. I was worried that it would taste healthy, which I don't know. <laughs> if but it doesn't. And somehow, like when something that's healthy tastes good, you're like, oh, that means there's uh-huh. a lot of sugar in it. Uh-huh. There is one gram of sugar per scoop. Wow, that's not. That's good. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I check sugar on a lot of things, and I feel like one gram is, you're rocking with one okay. gram. Okay, so for our friends like Amanda, mm-hmm. who haven't mm-hmm. heard about Athletic Grains, yes. here's the deal. One scoop of AG1 added to eight ounces of water in the morning. You could do five, six ounces if you want. but Yeah, I mean, eight ounces is small. Like, that's not much. It's still not bad. So a yeah. glass of water in the morning, you are absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, Whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds good. <laughs> I want that. I want that. That sounds great. Listen, I love efficiency, and so I love that one scoop. I am supporting my gut health, my nervous system, my immune system, hallelujah, my energy, my recovery, my focus, and 
aging. Okay, I'm in now. Yeah, yeah. You're like, no, I'm in. <laughs> you, yeah. you interested me in energy and you sealed the deal at aging. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we obviously love to talk about beneficial habits here on the She Reads Truth podcast. And AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. Right now, Athletic Greens invites our listeners to reclaim their health and arm their immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's one scoop in a cup of water every day. That is it. And I love this especially because my vitamin drawer is out of control. (laughs) So if I can do one thing instead of a hundred things, I am in. Sign me up. All right. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give our listeners, listen to this, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. Wow. A whole year. And five free travel packs with their first purchase. That feels like a win. Okay. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash truth. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash truth to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. Back to the show. So I want to talk a minute about just God's holiness, because at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, that's how we start, right? As we, Ezekiel has this vision of God's glory that very literally puts him on his face and stuns him. And throughout the book, we, you know, there, there's the theme of God is very much holy <laughs> and his people are are not. They are to be set apart as his people and as holy, but they have violated that in more ways than, you know, the the book enumerates many, many ways. So we have as in these last chapters, in all of the detail, like you said, in all of the numbers and this this vision of the temple in in great, great detail, there are a lot of there's just this drumbeat for me of God's holiness and how everything is to be done a certain way, even here at the end of chapter 43, where it's talking about the altar and the way in which the sacrifices are to be presented and offered. There's this phrase at the end of verse 27 where you know, after God is is given all of these details of how the sacrifice is to be given, and then it says, "And I will accept you." <laughs> this is the declaration of the Lord God. And so, for me, Doctor Hayes, there's so much here where I want more clarity on how Jesus fulfills all of this detailed requirement for how the people can be in relationship with God and how they are to be in the presence of God. Can you help us just understand that a little bit? Well, sure. And going like you did from this to Jesus Christ is the key, you know, to understanding how this connects with the, you know, with the New Testament. The idea of presence, and this is not just here in Ezekiel, but of course, Back in Exodus, when God comes crashing down in Exodus into the tabernacle, you know, he tells them, I'll dwell in your midst, but he needs a place to stay. So the description of the tabernacle and the same thing, you've got the holy place and veils and the most holy, there's a separation and you have descending grades of holiness as you move Mm -hmm. away from God's presence or move closer to God's presence. So how do you deal with God living in your midst? That's the book of Leviticus. And these chapters here in Ezekiel are parallel in Leviticus, yeah. the, 
the the god's arrival in 43 kind of parallels exodus and so now these chapters are paralleling leviticus mm-hmm. and of course having god in your midst you hit the nail on the head the problem is his glory and his holiness how can sinful right. people come in mm-hmm. how can we live with the holy awesome god and in the tabernacle he was just right down the street from him you know so mm-hmm. how do you deal with that well god gives the levitical system the sacrificial system that there's this sacrifice that allows for them allows to cover sin to allow them to at least worship him they're still at a distance he's still in the holy of holies okay and so this is paralleling then what Jesus Christ is going to do mm-hmm. so when Christ comes you know you read earlier in 37 wasn't about God going to put his spirit in people mm-hmm. but he can't do that if the spirit's holy and the people are not. Yeah. And so what Jesus does is, you know, his death, he is imputes righteousness to us. He doesn't, he not only removes all sin and uncleanliness, but he declares us to be righteous so that we can now come into the presence of mm-hmm. God like no one in the Old Testament was able to. And then God can say, all right, I'm putting my spirit within you. And so now, rather than God being in the most holy place of the temple or the tabernacle, he dwells within each believer, uh, something that can only happen because the death of Christ and has imputed righteousness to us made us, we don't feel all that righteous, but we have Mm. been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. And that allows us to come into the approach the holiness of God without getting incinerated, you know, uh, kind of thing. So yeah, absolutely. And I think they're replaying this, all of this stuff about the sacrifices and stuff. I think that uh, what it's what it's showing is just underscoring this old Levitical system and reminding everybody of the challenge of of actually having coming into the presence of God. That it yeah. requires all these sacrifices, and then of course Jesus will do away with all of that through His great sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. I love that. It's very complicated. This system. <laughs> yes. But I love the, um, in day 37, those going deeper passages, they speak to us as a priesthood, as New Testament believers. That's mm-hmm. us. First Peter 2 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this is only possible because Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. And it goes on to say, we're a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you can't, like, you can't read 1 Peter 2 9 the same way having read Ezekiel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, keep in mind in the Old Testament, both the tabernacle, the temple, and I think in Ezekiel's temple here, that the temple and the tabernacle, these were not assembly halls where people gathered together to worship the God up in heaven, kind of like a church would be viewed. Yeah. Those were the re- the residences of God, okay? Hmm. God lives in that tabernacle. He lives in the temple. The priest is the one, and not everybody goes in there. The average person had to stay out in a courtyard. Only the priest could come into the presence of God. Hmm. And so when he tells them, even in Exodus 19, that you're a nation of priests, the point is he's coming down to live in their midst, that he's going to be right there with them. That makes them priests to have access to him. But still, he's restricted close access to just a few. Yeah. But now in the New Testament, like as Peter says, we all have that 
special privilege to come into the presence of God. I think we take it for granted sometimes, you know, but wow, if you read the Bible, this is a very privileged, special situation That's that right. we have yeah. to come right into the very presence of God. He dwells within us. We don't have to go to the temple and stay out in the courtyard or anything yeah. else like that, or let somebody mediate for us. Right. We have that coming right into his presence and Man, yeah. should be a little scary too. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, that this is totally. because you see how big the glory is and how dangerous the presence of God is, and it's not to be taken lightly. Yeah. And so now, wow, we've got it here. He lives, you know, within each one of us. And so, man, I should lead a holy life. Yeah. Because you I think mean, about when he gave that's... Ezekiel the tour in, in Ezekiel 8 of like, this is all of the impurity that's happening in my temple. Well, now if we're the temple, right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. search me and know me. What like what impurity is happening in his temple? If I'm his yeah. temple, I mean it's yeah. it's quite radical the message of Jesus that that God, the same holy God, yeah, dwells within us. That's terrifying. And has dared to make us his temple yeah. when. You know, there are a couple of instances of this this week that you all will read, but one of them that I just happened to be looking at is in chapter 44, where it's talking about the priest's duties and saying like what they're to wear. And so in verse 19 of chapter 44, it says, before they go out to the outer court, to the people, they must take off the clothes they have been ministering in, leave them in the holy chambers and dress in other clothes so that they do not transmit holiness to the people through their clothes. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just mind-blowing that this is yeah, yeah. this is the level of glory and holiness that we're dealing with. And it's, you know, it's it's Moses' radiant face after being Yeah, I was gonna say that's God. a good connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had to cover it up because yeah. I think it's also a little significant to me to be reading about, you know, the Levitical priests and that reinstitution in this vision and remember that Ezekiel is a Levite, right? Like he was, right. he was growing up to be a priest in the line of Zadok. And so I wonder, I don't know. I just like, I think that like, I want to make that connection and think about what it must have been like for him to be hearing this and seeing mm-hmm. this. Um, so and, you know, and it and it may be we wonder why all the detail. Hmm. Well, maybe he's more interested in that. <laughs> Valid, you know, than yeah. We are. You know, I mean, say you're a pastor and God's given you a vision of some future church, and He says, "And here's the pastor's study," you know, <laughs> or <laughs> whatever. Like, oh, I talk know. about that. So, well, the rest of us don't care, you know. But <laughs> what maybe the pastor? I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe you know he is more interested in priestly things and. And Ezekiel draws a lot from Leviticus throughout the whole, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the whole book. And so I think you're right on that, that it is it is of special interest to him mm-hmm. because he is he is a Levitical priest. Well, you know, we haven't read Leviticus yet as a community, Dr. Hayes, so we'll be sure to let you know when we do, because we'll yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> need to invite you back. Yeah, yeah. For that one additional of our, light. One of our reading. few holdouts. We haven't yeah. I mean it's, we've read about all of them. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Get excited. <laughs> I love also in day 38. I mean, throughout this, there's just a lot of detail and a lot mm-hmm. of 
requirements, right? Like a lot of like, this is how you'll, you know, make a sacred portion of the land, or this is, you know, the sacrifices that we made at these appointed times. But at the end of day 38, I love this like heart of the matter in Micah 6.8, where it says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you (laughs) to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Mm. And I think that um, when we get overwhelmed by all of the things that we're reading in Ezekiel and like to go like, what does God require of you, reader? That's so helpful to me. And that verse connects, you know, well, Mm -hmm. contextually, if you back up and read the verses just prior to that in Micah, he brings absurd Levitical things. What is it that you want? Do you want, should I offer thousands of rivers of oil? Should I sacrifice, I forget the details, hundreds of rams? He brings this absurd, should I sacrifice my own son, he said. And what level of sacrifice is acceptable? Yeah. Uh, And he realizes we cannot ever meet that. There's nothing that we can do that's acceptable. And especially some of the hypocritical stuff that we saw taking place in the Old Testament. And God says, no. I want you to do justice, he mm-hmm. says, do mishpat, and to love chesed, this you know, loyal love that's there. It's, yeah, it's a fantastic verse. Mm. I love it. Uh, we're going to read, of course, chapter 45 this week. And there in the midst, you know, at this point now, the Lord is talking about dividing up the land as inheritance. And we get all of these like echoes of Joshua, which we read as a community. Was that last year? It was year for before. Lent last yeah. year. Last year. Yes. Time, so, time just runs I mean, together, doesn't biblical it? literacy win for our listeners yes. and readers who have hung with us now and, yep. and were with yep. us last Lent. They're, I'm sure as you read this week, you'll be like, Every, I remember that. Yes. Everything's yeah. connecting, yeah. Yeah. But in the midst of that, you know, because you start to see all the numbers coming at you in the paragraph, and, you know, I will start as you are. Since Dr. Hayes admitted to this, I can certainly <laughs> admit to this. Start reading a little faster and get into skimming territory. But chapter 45 was so fascinating to me because there's so much justice. I feel like in God, like, restoring things to the way they ought to be to their right, mm-hmm. to the to what is right. And then in verse 8, it says, This will be his land as a possession in Israel. My princes will no longer oppress my people, but give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. This is what the Lord God says. You have gone too far, princes of Israel. Put away violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Mm. Put an end to the evictions of my people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. And then it talks about having honest scales and measures and all of that. And I mean, I hear, I hear Micah yeah. six eight in that. Yeah. You yeah. know, that this sure. this this heartbeat of of God's justice. Yeah, that's a steady drumbeat throughout the prophets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That God gets in through, whether you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Micah or Zephaniah, God tells them they've broken this Mosaic covenant. Mm-hmm. He calls them to repentance. But the way they've broken it, he says, you've, you've done idolatry as a major thing. And we see that in Ezekiel. But number two is this injustice kind of thing of oppressing people, taking their land, doing dishonest stuff, and especially They'll bring up orphans, widows, Mm -hmm. and foreigners, which was from Deuteronomy, 
oppressing them. So this runs throughout all the prophets. And what God says is, you know, accuses their leaders, their princes, their shepherds. They all use that term as well. You had this back when you dealt with the shepherds chapter, what, 34, Mm -hmm. the bad shepherds that they had. And God said, no, I'm going to send you good shepherds, Mm -hmm. you know. In fact, he says, I'll shepherd you myself. That's right. And so we we see this transition from God saying, I'm going to send you good leaders to somebody very special. He himself, that God himself Mm -hmm. is involved in that shepherding, you know, process, which becomes Jesus Christ and, you know, and then things that merge into the end of the book of Revelation. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's uh, the disconnection. They never, they never let go of this, the prophets, even in the post-exilic, they're calling them to be, you know, faithful to not just the vertical worship to God, but that your vertical relationship means you got to relate to people Mm -hmm. correctly also. And that's what God wants as well. So, the prophets never let go of that, you know, that you got to, you know, the Ten Commandments, the first half has mm-hmm. to deal with your relationship with God. The second half, how you deal with each other. And the prophets are going to say, you cannot separate those two. They mm-hmm. go they go together. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting you pointed that out. It kind of buried in here with all this other stuff about approaching God and sacrifices and temples. And, you know, we're thinking personally in that, but this text here is a reminder yeah. how you relate to each other is very important to God as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right, Ezekiel 47. Let's talk about this life-giving river. I needed this. Yeah, I needed to read this after 46 chapters of Ezekiel. Yeah. yeah. I want to give— Well, it's cool. And, of course, it comes from—you see it in Revelation as well, so we got yeah. two different views of yes. it. Yes. And uh, anyway, go ahead and ask the question. I'm getting ahead of you. Well, I want to give our listeners who maybe haven't, I mean, if you're listening on the day this releases, you have not read Day 39 Mm -hmm, yet. mm -hmm. And so I want to give you just enough context to appreciate the conversation that's going to follow. So in Ezekiel 47, it says in verse 1, Then he, the guide, brought me to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next, he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faced east. The water was trickling. And then he says, and then it came up to my ankles, and then up to my knees, and then up to my waist, and then it mm. became a river. And then going on in verse 8, when it enters the sea, so when the river flows and enters the sea, the sea of foul water... The water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because the water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. And then down in verse 12, all kinds of trees providing food will grow along both the banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for eating and their leaves for healing. Revelation, revelation, revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a spectacular vision. Of course, the Temple Mount is kind of up high. So if you're, there's no way to get water up there, you know, humanly speaking, (laughs) unless you have a big pump or something. And so it's one of those things, too, that makes me think this is not a description of some future literal temple. 
but that this is something bigger than that, beyond that. And again, that river shows up again in Revelation 20, 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so I'll read that Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2, because I want y'all to hear it. This is John speaking about his vision now. And he says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. That is not just a coincidental connection. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, and John draws a lot from Ezekiel. You know, he's constantly pulling the images of Ezekiel and bringing it into, you know, his visions uh, at the end. And notice the reference even there to the lamb, a reminder that, no, all those Levitical things are gone. You know, Mm -hmm. Jesus is the lamb. He has replaced all of that. And so John will continually refer to Christ as the lamb in his references there. I think it brings... The whole Levitical system, you know, is is brought to mind just by calling Christ the Lamb. And not just in Revelation, but John connects to Ezekiel when he talks about the vine and when he talks yeah. about Jesus as the good shepherd. Obviously, those Jesus, he's, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus is the one yeah, connecting sure. yeah, to Ezekiel, sure. but it's cool to see those parallels mm-hmm. throughout John's writing. Yeah, yeah. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, that... Ezekiel yeah. 34. That's a big deal. It's where he's, it's where he's pulling from. And, and Jeremiah's got one, too, in 23. But Ezekiel's the one that goes on and on and on the yeah. most about the shepherd. So I think Jesus is alluding directly to, you know, to Ezekiel yeah. with that. Yeah. As I was reading the final chapter of Ezekiel, I, you know, and I'd read it before, but I think I'd just kind of forgotten the ins and outs of this final chapter. And at first I thought, oh, like more lists. Like I kind of <laughs> wanted more of a oomph. I don't know. But then I thought, you know what? No, like this is this is God fulfilling his promises by name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like these are less significant to us because our name is not <laughs> I don't see Amanda in here. You know what I mean? But it's yeah, yeah, yeah. but these are these are God's people and these details these tribes this matters. Yeah. And this is part of that very intricately woven story of redemption that God has written, sometimes so intricate that it can lose our attention, right? Mm-hmm. Like I need to be entertained, yeah. Lord. And yeah. Yeah. But it's just, it's really beautiful to read, again, this drumbeat of these are my people, and this is, this is their land, this is the new city. And, but you, it, it's hard to beat those last, <laughs> that last verse. The perimeter of the city will be six miles. There's another detail for us, mm-hmm. right? And the name of the city from that day on will be the Lord is there. Beautiful. And so to be a book it's, about God's presence yeah. with his people. Right, right. That we and, end that. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it was, it does eventually end with a splash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I mean, earlier you look and notice what happens. So after all this discussion of the temple, when he gets right to the end, he's back to the, just the city. Yeah. And then he's got the gates of the city. There's 12 gates. That's what you see in Revelation mm-hmm. and 21 and 22. And Revelation, you know, ends with the city and tells us there wasn't a temple simply because the presence of God 
didn't require it anymore. Absolutely. No temple needed, you know, because of, and we would say because of what Jesus Christ has done to allow people to come into his presence. So by the time it gets to the end, they kind of, they're not talking about the temple. They're talking about the city and the name of the city is God is there. Like you said, that's a fantastic way. Yahweh is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the way the whole Bible is going to end. Amen. When we get to the the end of Revelation, they're going to pull it together with a similar vision of this new city uh, and along with the new heavens and new earth and God dwelling there uh, in that city. Okay, Dr. Hayes, before we close, and I know that I know that we've already spent an hour. We'll find a way. But before we close, I want to hear from you, our community of men and women in the Word of God every day. We've just concluded the book of Ezekiel, but Lent isn't over for us. So when we turn the page on Sunday, we're going to be opening our Bibles or our study books to Luke chapter 19 in the triumphal entry. And it's important to me and to Amanda that as readers of God's Word, that we don't see books like Ezekiel and Luke as separate or unrelated. And you've actually done a beautiful job, this whole episode of tying the Old Testament and the New Testament and showing us Christ in both. But would you give us, just because it's something you're so good at, give us a connection from this vision of Ezekiel in this temple Give us like a little bit of a historical thread that would carry us to, I understand this is like the world's tiniest request, give us a thread to the triumphal entry and Holy Week from the book of Ezekiel. You know, as we mentioned, the the presence of God is a huge theme. It ties the whole Bible together, starts in Genesis. People lose the, they're kicked out of the garden. The rest of the Bible is, how are we going to recover that? How is God working to recover this relational that presence that he wants. So he starts on that in Exodus where he enters into covenant with Israel. They build the tabernacle. He dwells in the tabernacle. Then he dwells in the temple. His presence is a huge thing for them there. But they sin. They do all kinds of terrible things. They don't take advantage of that. So eventually their sin drives him away, as we mentioned. And you read that in Ezekiel that he drives them with God away. And that ends that relationship, special relationship that Israel had with them, and God leaves. But Ezekiel in 40 to 48, along with Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets, they're going to say, no, God will come back, that there is a time of restoration where God will come back, regather his people, and enter into this close relationship. And his presence the recovering of that presence is a big part of the story. So how is that going to happen? You know, we know from Leviticus the difficulty of sin. We've seen Israel sin and separate them into the problems that human people have. The answer, of course, the New Testament tells us is Jesus Christ will be the answer to that. So we got a couple of things taking place here during the last week is number one, the return of God. Okay, he comes back. There is this triumphant entry as king and as the presence of God into the temple, but he's faced with the same sin and hostility that Ezekiel experienced, you know, saw in 8, 9, and 10. It's a terrible thing. And so what happens, though, is that his death is going to fix the huge part of the problem. Jesus' death and resurrection, as we mentioned earlier, now makes us clean and makes us holy. He declares us holy. And so now, we're not separated 
from God's glory by our sin. We don't have curtains to keep us away or courtyard. We don't have to bring a lamb in every week to cover up our sins during the week. Jesus has done all of that. So the Holy Week is building towards this big resolution of the issue that has separated us from God, our sin. And after his death and resurrection, then by faith, you know, those who accept that, Jesus declares us righteous. And now the Spirit then comes. This is the presence of God. The Spirit of God comes down within each of us and dwells. And this is the return, you know, of God. We, the church becomes the temple of God and we see God dwelling with us and, and, and among us throughout, you know, this church age that we're in. And then still pointing towards that future time in Revelation where we have this new heavens and the new earth where everything's made right. And, and then there we have God and, and Jesus, the lamb, again, the father and the lamb dwelling in the new temple in this wonderful water, you know, flowing out. So that's, it is the Holy Week and the, the death and resurrection of Christ that makes that, that makes that all possible, this new presence that we experience. I've got to tell you, I have never felt more ready <laughs> for Holy Week than having come out of the book of Ezekiel mm-hmm. and looking for the presence of God that needed to come in, did come, and now dwells in me. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that was our goal going into the study. I remember us saying in week one that one of the reasons that we are reading Ezekiel for Lent was to behold God's glory so that we can understand our sin mm-hmm. and and have a deeper understanding of what Jesus did on mm-hmm. the cross and what the resurrection means. And so, Dr. Hayes, thank you for helping us achieve that thank goal. Thank you, guys. Thank yeah. you for the years and years of study that make you able to just answer our questions. So well, thank you. guys are doing great. This is a great study that you're doing. I love what you're doing, how you teach it. I love the great material you're producing. So Lord bless you in your, in your ministry as you continue these podcasts. Well, thank you. We're really, really grateful. Thank you for that word of encouragement. Friends, keep reading. Keep going. You are almost to the end of a very long book of the Old Testament. That's right. This is an accomplishment. Yes. Um, Reading through this book together, you've made it a joy for us. I'm a little sad. I know. But it's over. But I am comforted that... This next week, we'll be back here next week to to prepare for Holy Week. That's right. Together, we'll be in Holy Week. That's right. By the time mm-hmm. we're we're back with you next Monday, mm-hmm. and our guest for next week is Jenny Allen. She's going to talk Holy Week with us, which I'm very much looking forward I think to. Jenny, she's going to bring the fire. Yeah, and she will. You just count knowing on her. Jenny. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Hayes, until next week, what do we tell our dear friends and listeners? Keep opening up your Bibles. <laughs>